0: With chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary dairy. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help,
1: I'm Virginia Heffernan, and welcome to This Is Critical, where we examine all of our assumptions about culture, like that Audrey Hepburn was great in My Fair Lady. I mean, have you heard the West End cast recording with Julie Andrews? You gotta listen, if not. Okay, so I've been a journalist for 25 years. First, I covered books and TV at The New York Times, and then I've been writing forever about politics at the LA Times, Slate, The Economist, Wired, and Politico. But returning to culture for this show is not as big a transition as it seems. After covering Trump, the trash-talking game show host, remember him who sometimes seemed to have glue gunned together his Oval Office, squared his jaw in a mirror, and learned some world wrestling dialogue to play a TV president? Well, I've discovered you can't write about politics without addressing culture. Tanning cream, overlong ties, reality TV, The National Enquirer, Right-wing talk radio, Playboy magazine, Facebook whoppers, Kanye West, and the exposés of relentless American racism in everyday life. All of those cultural artifacts take the main stage in what we continue to call politics. Or that's our hypothesis. You know, when you're left to your own brooding about life in a chair, you're as likely to brood on CrossFit or crypto as you are on filibuster reform, right? And they're all connected. I mean, CrossFit people may start out with an interest in abs and kettlebells, but before long, they're prepping for the end of the world and thinking to themselves, maybe if I hoard enough Dogecoin, I can stop the steal. Oh, I hate CrossFit. Anyway, if culture is indeed upstream from the silty salmonella of politics, that's a cynical line of the late horrific Andrew Breitbart that I might even agree with. If that's all what's downstream, we're headed upstream on This Is Critical. Today, we're paddling upstream with jazz hands, beads, and feathers. We're talking Broadway, and the water we're drinking is Broadway bottled. So get some at intermission for $17 with a Mrs. Doubtfire mug. Why Broadway? Well, whether or not you saw the Tonys this weekend, you know that Broadway has been dark for more than 525,600 minutes. Remember from Rent? And some people are very, very excited about curtains rising again. And even if you don't think you're one of those people, here's why you should be. And yes, it does have to do with culture coming before politics. So you probably have this image of Broadway as the showman's wing of the left, but it's not so simple. You see, there's a risk-averse bass note rattling below soaring progressive sopranos, and that tension has never been more stark than in the last five years. In late November 2016, right after Mike Pence was elected vice president, Pence and mother went to see Hamilton. When I heard about this, I sort of feared he might pretend to be normal and muster up some appreciation for the actor David Diggs' record-breaking 6.3 words a second rap in that play. But Pence did not pretend— Instead, when the black and brown cast greeted Pence at the curtain call with the actor Brandon Victor Dixon saying, we are the diverse America and we are alarmed and anxious that your new administration will not protect us and uphold our inalienable rights, sir. He kind of said it like that Aaron Burr, sir, line in Hamilton. And we know what happened to inalienable rights after that. It was kind of Alienating. Off Broadway, some theater addressed politics head on. I loved Jackie Sibley's play Fairview, which uh, segregated the audience at the end, which was pretty intense. But Broadway itself was kind of shy. For every brain brightening production like Slave Play, Jeremy O. Harris's play about three interracial couples undergoing antebellum sexual performance therapy that was snubbed at Sunday's awards. There were three jukebox musicals, four Disney adaptations, and five revivals. And then the lights dimmed in March of 2020. Desolation on Broadway. No plays. And in the meantime, history careened around freakishly. The pandemic killed almost 700,000 people, including my Aunt Peg, who loved theater. New York City was supercharged with protesters and police violence, and my partner's son was concussed by the police at a march. And finally, New York City's most famous one-time resident incited an insurrection by far right-wingers in the U.S. Capitol. What was Broadway going to do? Is it time for a January 6th-themed musical featuring the QAnon Shaman of La Mancha? Then when the lights of Broadway came back on this fall, things looked different. In the dark, producers, actors, directors, writers seemed to have come up with a new plan. For making one small stretch of road in one American city speak to this whole jacked time in our country's history. But the new shows on Broadway aren't just reacting and spinning and trying to be woke or anti-woke or take a side in a culture war that turns culture into Girl Scout patches you sew on your little green vest, shark or jet. If theatergoers wanted that, they could stop by Will Call, pick up their patch, sew it on, and be smugly good walking around Times Square. But that's evidently not how theater wants to play this. All of the new plays that opened on Broadway this month are by Black playwrights. Plays like Lackawanna Blues by Ruben Santiago Hudson, Thoughts of a Colored Man by Kenan Scott II, and Trouble in Mind by Alice Childress, which premiered first off-Broadway back in 1955. Matthew Arnold, didn't see Matthew Arnold coming, did you? One of the first cultural critics in English used the old phrase sweetness and light to describe what culture does, and he was being sincere. He wasn't describing positive thinking or opiates. By sweetness and light, he meant the stuff bees produce, honey, for sweetness, and wax, for candles, which he believed was also beauty and intelligence, the two essential components of an excellent and thriving culture. My guest today... To talk all things sweetness and light and Broadway is a well-credentialed member of theater's old guard, Paul Rudnick, who way back in the 90s struggled to get theater to be as progressive as we think it now is. His breakout success with Jeffrey, an off-Broadway comedy about AIDS. But if by some chance you weren't hanging around Manhattan three decades ago, you may know him better from his movie In and Out one of Hollywood's early rom-com successes with gay lead characters played by Kevin Klein and Tom Selleck, two straight actors. So he definitely has thoughts about representation in acting. He then got into the thorny business of adaptation, working on the remake of The Stepford Wives, which I loved. Now he's taking his talents to Broadway, co-writing the update of The Devil Wears Prada with music by one Elton John. I have a lot of questions for Paul about adaptations, not least because the last show I saw in the before times was Tootsie, the musical, and they took out a lot from the movie. The big gay panic gags, the soap opera set, and Julie as a white, browbeaten waif. How do you adapt Tootsie about an opportunistic male cross-dresser for an era when gender fluidity is much more visible? Paul spoke to me this week before the Tony Awards, perched in a throne-like chair surrounded by books and scripts, a setting more fitting for penning love letters in Brideside Revisited than getting into Twitter battles, another of Paul's talents. Paul, welcome to This is Critical.
2: Oh, well, it is a delight to be here. Thank you so much.
1: Um, First, I got to ask you about Twitter. Somehow Twitter hit the spot for you. Let's admit it. Why? I
2: got on it, I think, because someone, my publisher, wanted me to promote a book. And I said, I, you know, very grudgingly allowed a nice young person to come over to my house and set it up for me because I yeah. use young people as if they are seeing eye dogs. Um, <laughs> and from then on, it was easy because I realized, oh, wait, this is a, this is a tech area that I actually can master because it's so infantile. Also, I think it's for anyone, for writers, anybody who is writing a book or even an article or let alone a screenplay or a play. There's enormous periods of downtime, of waiting, of trying to find a publisher, trying to find a producer so that by the time the finished work finally appears, you have to remember why you'd even begun. Twitter, on the other hand, one second and you're published, you know, so it's sort of like the instant magazine.
1: Now, do you ever workshop material on Twitter? I have to admit, I do. Because you know, there's nothing like the data of you know, 64 likes. Is it going to go into the article? Maybe not. It's like it's sort of a lazy, lazy person's cowardly way to try out a joke. Oh yes, I think.
2: But I, and I think Twitter was very smart not to allow you to go back and edit tweets because yes. then I, I would I would never leave the screen. You know, I would ju- I just constantly fiddle. I'll delete tweets if I suddenly realize, oh, that was not as funny as I thought it was, or that was offensive in a way I didn't
1: intend. So you talked about offending people. And I, you know, because I'm also cowardly, I love to be the one offended. And, you know, like you say in this recent tweet, your best excuses for missing a deadline, I think number four on the list, is the patriarchy. (laughs) I will do the patriarchy and be its victim at the drop of a hat. Oh,
2: Absolutely. Right? Like, I will play any hey, card in the deck. You know, I will be Jewish and gay on a, in a heartbeat. You know, if especially yeah. if it gets me out of having just said something that was totally wrong and untenable, I say, oh, you just said that because I'm Jewish, didn't you? And <laughs> exactly. the other person will back down because we're all in such terror of seeming bigoted.
1: So I want to talk about offending people because you're here to talk about Broadway. And I am a huge fan of Tootsie and I loved the play. But, and, there were a lot of changes from the movie that we all know and love, and I wasn't sure.
2: I wasn't sure how I felt. Well, the interesting thing is, with a project like Tootsie, where there were changes made, this the original film still exists, so that you feel, okay, you're mm-hmm. not going to damage people's actual memories, and if you are still an enormous fan of the original work, it exists for you. But in terms of changes to something... That is the first time out. I know Jagged Little Pill is making changes right now. A number of shows are. And even with Shakespeare, I think that, well, Shakespeare, they will edit. They will align. They will make things simpler, not necessarily mm-hmm. in response to, um, you know, political outrage. So it's tricky as to what you respond to and what you're willing to sort of tough out, um, in terms, especially around issues of gender right now, because I know both Tootsie and the new musical of Mrs. Doubtfire are dealing with projects that were originally considered kind of harmless drag vehicles.
1: So who do you cast? Could there be a version of Dustin Hoffman's Tootsie that takes into account ideas about the gender continuum that are now much more in the air than they were in the 80s? Or do you just stay with the original? I wanted to know what Paul and his co-writer, Kate Weatherhead, are doing with The Devil Wears Prada.
2: What we're finding is that on one hand, you do want to honor people's memories and worship of the original film and of of, uh, Lauren Weisberger's best-selling novel as well. On the other hand, time has passed, especially in terms of the world of fashion, um, in terms of the existence of print journalism and fashion, in terms of uh, racial inclusion, in terms of gender issues. So we are trying to reflect that. On the other hand, that could result in throwing out the entire original property, which is probably not gonna sit well with the you know, millions of fans of the original work who were looking forward to a, a sort of wonderful reminder of that. There was that mm. um, revival of West Side Story that is, is sadly not gonna be able to return, but was wildly controversial because of so there were so many changes made and there was so much updating and so much use of video screens.
1: The shuttered revival of West Side Story was a wild reimagining. The show opened for previews in February 2020 and had mixed reviews. And its lead producer, Scott Rudin, then stepped away from the production this past April after his bullying of his employees came to light. It was also much darker, cutting the bubbly I feel pretty and even doing away with the snapping. Can you imagine? The Jets are no longer all white And the play is set in a modern world where characters take videos of the violence in the play and those videos appear projected on stage.
2: And I love West Side Story, but I enjoyed that. I thought, no, I have seen many traditional and more conventional Mm -hmm. productions. So, and those memories are intact. So I didn't mind seeing the original messed around with a bit. And I'm looking forward to the the Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner movie version as well, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure will not be 100% a duplicate of the film from however many years ago. So yeah, I, th- I, I don't think anybody should be afraid of, of change, of, of, a, of a different take or of an update, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't think it does. It doesn't even have to be an improvement. It can just be a reflection of the times we're living in.
1: So, but when you started writing, and I think in general, Broadway is supposed to be sort of mischievously progressive. So, like, we have an intern on this show, and we talked to her about this show, about Broadway, and she said she had an aunt who had had a place in New York since the 70s, and she used to come and stay with her and saw Broadway shows. And there's, I did not expect what came next. It was the first time she had seen, as she put it, two men respectfully in love with each other and kissing on stage um, in a show based on some Billy Joel songs called Moving Out. So I just realized that, it, you know, it is meant to electrify, um, and I still think it does that. What's interesting is that in the days of Billy Joel and in your early days writing for film and, and, and stage, that progressiveness is no longer progressive. That's, well, Broadway, I think, has
2: always been a little more traditional and more conventional, especially because of the economics involved when you the shows that are off-Broadway can be far more daring and far more offensive because they don't have to make as much money as, as things on Broadway do with so many people and so many unions needing to be paid. Um, True. But given that, I think because Broadway also depends to a large extent on a tourist audience, Broadway does cater to a little bit more of a middle sensibility. You know that it's, um, it needs to have the widest possible audience.
1: Paul would know about having to cater to a broad audience. One of his most famous plays, Jeffrey, was barely able to find a home when he wrote it in the early 90s. No theater would produce it, and why? Well, it was a comedy about AIDS.
2: Well, Jeffrey was already almost 30 years ago that Jeffrey was at the peak of the AIDS crisis and it was wildly sexual and wildly gay and ran for a year off Broadway. So and what was interesting though, I remember there was, after the play had been running a while, we had a, a, a different new cast because the original cast went out to perform the show in Los Angeles and Greg Louganis, the wonderful Olympic champion mm. and who's just the sweetheart of all time went into the show as a cast member, and he was terrific playing the role of a young chorus boy. But what we found was that sometimes people who had no idea what the show was about or how raunchy it got would see Greg's name and think, ah, an American hero. And they'd come to see it. There was one family, it was a mother and a child and a husband, young child, like seven or eight. And after the first act, the mother and the young child left it's interesting because also the I wrote a movie in and out that was also many years ago, which had a same-sex kiss between Kevin Kline and Tom Selleck, which at that time was considered what revolutionary. And when we mm-hmm. would screen it, the, the theater would erupt, both pro and con. And one of the satisfactions was that that kiss was being seen all across the country in places where, no, there was not a big screen, glossy studio movie, same-sex kiss going on very often.
1: As progressive as in and out was in 1997 with two men kissing on stage for 12 seconds, is that enough to qualify as French? It still had straight actors playing gay characters. Today, there's a much bigger debate about who should be played by whom in all forms of storytelling.
2: Well, that, it's interesting. It's a, it has become a real flashpoint, both in the, in the gay world and for racial casting, for everything in the world. Mm-hmm. And Mike, I have used over the course of my career both gay and straight actors to play gay roles, and I've almost always been incredibly lucky because the actors have just been magnificent and have delivered like crazy. So there's something when people ask that question that they, I think, they sometimes don't realize. You are legally not allowed to ask an actor during the audition process what their sexuality is, nor mm. should you be. You know that that would be awful if you were, if you were really interrogating people about their personal lives. The notion that you somehow just can tell secretly or through your gaydar whether a performer is gay is um, very questionable. But beyond that, I would say, you know, I would never want to sacrifice Kevin Klein's performance in in and out I mean, he's magnificent. I also wouldn't want to sacrifice the sort of wonderful pop culture appeal of having Tom Selleck, who's, you know, bedrock, the heartland America's sweetheart playing a happily gay role. Yeah. But given that, I think because of certain changes in the culture, there is something when I have used gay actors to play gay roles, there is a, first of all, there's a shorthand you can use because they know exactly what you're talking about. There's a sense of nuance. I remember when I watched Behind the Candelabra, the, the series on Liberace on HBO with Michael yes. oh, and yes. Matt Damon. And that was terrific. But there was a moment where Cheyenne Jackson, who's a openly and happily gay actor, has about 15 seconds on screen as a spurned boyfriend. Those 15 seconds are the most authentic thing in the show. When he he knew what he was talking about in a way that Michael Douglas and Matt Damon, who were giving, you know, all out heartfelt, very entertaining performances, they still didn't know what that was. So it's I'm sort of torn. I would, maybe it's, I would go by a case-by-case basis. But I'm certainly, when I saw on Broadway, again, that the production of Boys in the Band, that had an all-gay cast, which was important also because it had actors who were having wildly successful careers as openly gay actors, you know, Matt Bomer, Andrew Rannells, Jim Parsons. Mm-hmm. And that gave the piece not just a uh, sort of self-knowledge but a genuine excitement because you thought, okay, these are young guys playing an earlier generation of gay men, but there was a real sense of of understanding and communication between those generations that you would not get with straight actors. But I think uh, the less rules you make sometimes, the better.
1: And then, you know, maybe within and Out, everybody likes the idea of white gay guys who look a lot like white straight guys who are kind of the same height and same social class. And maybe all these are to bring other people around instead of accurate representations or or complex representations of, you know, of the experiences of the characters. Instead, they're telling us like little fables that we like to hear. I don't know. That's too dark?
2: No, I think they, but they can be accurate representations of a given group, which is why you need a movie like Moonlight and why you need something like Slave Play and why you need an infinite variety of works on the gay experience, on the, you know, the entire LGBTQ alphabet from every yes. point of view and every racial group and every gender, so that it's uh, not a question of eliminating saying, okay, White case experience no longer has the slightest value. It's like, no, that is one variety. And there are endless amounts that need equal footing, but it doesn't mean you eliminate anybody. I think that inclusion should be as broad as possible. Um, It's kind of Mm -hmm. like even on Broadway, when the people talk about the Broadway audience, which is also quite uniformly white, sometimes older. The point is to make it an absolute necessity to cultivate and market to it and reach out to every possible audience and to reflect their lives on stage. But it doesn't mean that white experiences are now completely invalid. It's no more about mm. everybody getting a shot rather than anyone being, you know, shunted shunted aside.
1: Coming up after the break, has comedy writing changed with our political sensibilities?
3: Just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag and Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack.
0: If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say,
1: Welcome back to This Is Critical. Today, I'm joined by Paul Rudnick, a writer of comedies both on the big screen and on the Great White Way. Did I really just say that? I think it's a nickname for Broadway. We're talking about what happens to the movies, shows, and plays we once loved when they start to show their age. When what was once avant-garde starts to feel more boomers who think sexual harassment is just courtship. Paul the line between what's funny and what's not is always shifting. How does that change how you write comedy?
2: Well, I try to be as aware as possible and also because I think compassion is never a false move. But on the other hand, yeah, you still want to have room for satire and room for humor and room for rise cracks. But it's one of the great uses, actually, of fiction, whether it's on stage or there is a One of the most superb books I've read in ages is called Detransition Baby by Tori Peters, who's a trans writer. She is just a spectacular writer and in every sense. And because she has both the talent and the authenticity, she writes a book that's very smart, really funny, very outrageous, non-PC. Very informative for people who aren't necessarily in the trans community. And I thought, okay, that's something a novel can do that nobody else can do. A, you know, even the most responsible, well researched documentary will be careful, will avoid certain nuances, will avoid certain types of humor. But because Tori Peters doesn't need to do that because she's so gifted and because she knows what she's talking about, you read this book as if it's the most brilliant secret that she's letting you in on. And you learn all sorts of things, which I'm sure a lot of trans people certainly already know. But so that's why I think writers can have a a value now that I think, okay, when I write my way into a subject, yeah, I'm very aware of where I'm coming from, my age, my background, which gives me, I think at best, a wider perspective. I realize, okay, it's kind of like if you've lived through the AIDS crisis and 9/11. Once you get to COVID, you have a certain way of coping with these things. It's when people mm-hmm. and you have a, a way of dealing with the hysteria that can surround events that are very new to a younger audience. I don't think you should ever use your your age or perspective as a form of superiority or you know a, a cudgel to beat a younger person with like oh when I was your age you know that kind of nonsense. My only rule is when someone's being way too PC or deeply humorless, I do caution myself to think, okay, but listen to what they're saying. Because even if you Mm. think they're an idiot, even if you will argue with every point they're making, there may be something completely valid there that you have missed and that you do need to hear. So that it's, um, yeah, it just means remaining curious.
1: You mentioned that sometimes you do think things are too PC, Did you think the criticism of In the Heights, for example, was too PC? I mean, you've got an extremely accomplished Broadway maestro in Lin-Manuel Miranda. And then all of a sudden he's being accused of colorism because he cast mainly light-skinned people of color for the movie version of In the Heights. People are even criticizing Hamilton, initially lauded for casting people of color in almost all the main roles. That's now being criticized for casting black actors to play slave owners. So do you dismiss that as hypersensitivity, or do you think, yeah, that's valid, we have to grow from that?
2: Yeah, it was interesting, because there were, I know with the, the film of In the Heights, there were issues of colorism in the Dominican community, and that they were using yes. very light-skinned actors, which wasn't necessarily an accurate uh, reflection of that community. Um, and Le and Mamo Miranda, I thought, handled it brilliantly, that he listened, he apologized for it things he felt, he mistakes he had made. There was not a sense that he was dismissing his critics in any way. And I remember when I saw In the Heights on stage the first time, and I just loved it. And it was also, but I am a a white person, so I'm not necessarily going to think of those issues that people who are actually from those neighborhoods are completely justified in bringing up. So it's, but I think you still need to um, contain that criticism within the enormous accomplishments of such a talented man. So I think there's mm-hmm. certainly room for both. And I guess the only problem is when it becomes total cancellation. It's like, no, you don't yank the film of In the Heights from theaters for that. You actually use it, here's a horrible buzzword, for a teachable moment. You say, okay, here's yeah. where things went awry and where they could have been improved and will be next time. But you, there's so much value in that film and in that show that it would be just awful to lose. The same with with Hamilton. Also, I think there are issues that arise from success. And when someone has had the overwhelming global popularity of a Lin-Manuel Miranda, of course he's going to retreat, he'll become a lightning rod for criticism, justified mm-hmm. or not. So I think there's a lot of layers to, um, to some of those attacks. But I think there's a yep. difference between justifiable criticism and cancellation.
1: What was your experience of missing Broadway like?
2: Well, what's interesting is I can actually totally, I very exactly date The beginning of the shutdown to an evening, I think it was in March of, you know, 18 months ago when I had tickets to the opening night of Six, the new musical. Oh, yes. And I remember during that day, I would, and I talked to my partner about this, like, should we go? You know, did we want to make sure we supported the production and the actors? Would we, were we too worried about getting sick? And then it was canceled. But I have tickets for the opening night, October 3rd. So I'll really have a timeline there.
1: Paul's first post-shutdown show was also Broadway's first post-shutdown show, a play called Pass Over. The show's writer, Antoinette Nwandu, changed the original ending from, spoiler alert, an anti-cathartic example of police violence to a hopeful moment of rebirth. But before that, Paul took part in a program leading up to Broadway's reopening, a pop-up show featuring big names like the actor Nathan Lane and the dancer Savion Glover.
2: When I was back in that theater, I just thought, oh my God, that I've I've been a part of so much Zoom material, which I mean, (laughs) I think Zoom will become a very useful tool for the theater, especially in terms of um, making theater accessible to people who don't live in cities where theater is as readily available as, as it is. in in larger towns but it's just not the same you know when you are breathing the same air as Nathan Lane and Savian Glover oh my god do you get a high you know (laughs) especially when you're watching a comedy and I know from experience when the audience is laughing it shoots the whole thing through the rafters it's so thrilling and it's what you will never get with TV or movie because the people on screen can't respond to the audience's laughter and in theater they can
1: we'll be right back after this
3: Just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag and Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack.
0: If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say,
1: Welcome back to This is Critical. So we learned a lot from the pandemic in so many realms. Did Broadway learn anything from the pandemic? Any way that lessons of Zooming or just missing Broadway might inform how Broadway picks up again?
2: Oh, yes. I mean, the results are still to be seen. But I think there was a genuine sort of awakening and uh, a sense of conversations at least beginning in terms of representation i know a lot of theaters are Mm. rethinking their artistic staffs they're rethinking their seasons they're realizing the need for the deepest possible change that you don't just want black performers on stage or even black playwrights work being produced you need to have people of every possible color um, in all the professions in design in stage crews in professions that in musicians that involve unions that are sometimes quite resistant to inclusion so and i think because people were able to take a pause it also was quite the result of um the george floyd murder that that caused a a huge outcry and and a, a huge sense of wait we are so overdue for change in every realm and particularly in the theater And Broadway is sort of the last to respond often in terms of change because, especially again, because of the economics involved, they're very wary, they can be very timid. But certainly this season is a positive sign.
1: You could see some of the signs at the Tonys on Sunday, like Sonia Taya's acceptance speech when she won for best choreographer for Moulin Rouge, the musical.
0: As a brown, queer, Arab American woman, I wasn't always welcomed. It takes graceful hands to lead people like me to the door. It's been 10 years since a woman has won this award. Though I'm honored to be a part of this legacy, this legacy is too small.
1: But the biggest sign is the fact I mentioned earlier, and it deserves repeating. All seven of the new plays on Broadway this fall are by Black playwrights, like Clyde's by Lynn Nottage and Chicken and Biscuits by Douglas Lyons, making his Broadway debut.
2: You know, and the fact that Passover is absolutely wonderful, was wonderfully received, audiences are adoring it. That's, mm-hmm. um, there's also plays by a, a terrific writer named Dominique Morisot that is, has a play called Skeleton Crew that's going to be done with Felicia Rashad. And I think she has mm-hmm. a, another play at one of the not-for-profits. So that, yeah, we are seeing the first glimmers of change. Um, but again, that's also, you want to see Asian plays, you want to see Indigenous plays, you want to see everything. You know, you think that can be the best and most positive goal imaginable.
1: You know, you're, you're calling attention to something really interesting that I hadn't thought about, which is the George Floyd uprising happened during the pandemic. It's crazy. It is crazy that those things happened at the same time, you know, and January 6th. That these are times when people were out either for social justice or for an insurrection. But at least with something that's a, a like, big ship to turn, like Broadway— Right, where it's like there's it's sort of conservative by nature and has a hard time making change. We got a lot of time to metabolize these things. So it wasn't like, uh, come on, we still gotta sell tickets to Lion King, you know, get out there again, we'll decide this race stuff later. There was time to get back on your heels and really rethink what the what the slate would be. And that I think, because Broadway had to shut down, because it's one of the fields unlike television that, you know, really didn't, it was dark. There was nothing. You know, this may represent a real sea change, um, if for no other reason that they got a blank slate.
2: Yeah. And it will be interesting to see also if you can create a timeline, however many years in the future, to say, okay, that was the tipping point. You know that there was suddenly Mm -hmm. a a new feeling of importance and welcome to different voices. And, you know, that's wouldn't that be wonderful?
1: I think it would. Obviously, there's a long way to go, but it feels a lot more like the cultural stream of Broadway is at least flowing in the right direction. Maybe you'll feel differently when you hear from our next guest, a true Broadway insider's Broadway insider. To talk about what's next in theater... Welcome, renowned producer and theatrical visionary, Paige Flake.
4: Oh, Virginia, it is such a pleasure to speak with you. Paige, you're here to share with us an exciting
1: new project that you say will invigorate
4: broadway oh well that is always the hope now isn't it and (laughs) yes i am absolutely tickled to talk about a brand new show that we are currently workshopping and hopefully drama gods willing will grace the broadway boards in the fall of 2022 it is called oh no coronavirus has shut down broadway the musical wow okay Wow, indeed, Virginia. I can tell that you're already on board. Now, who better to tell the story of an abandoned Broadway than Broadway itself? Is it too brave? Maybe. But it's time for Americans who can afford a $120 matinee balcony ticket to know the bravery that took place on that hallowed ground between 40th and 54th Streets, or what we like to refer to in the opening number as Ground Hero. Okay, okay. So what did the cast of Wicked do that fateful week in March as everything was shutting down? Did Elphaba grab one last mournful drink with Elsa and Simba at Broadway's watering hole Sardis? Wait, all of those characters appear in the show? It's brilliant, right? And because it is both an original work and contains elements of Beetlejuice, To Kill a Mockingbird, Wicked, Lion King, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, it will be eligible for both new musical and revival musical for the 2022 Tony season. But I don't want to jinx anything. Right. We wouldn't want to jinx it. So, act one of the show is performed to a completely empty house to signify Broadway's missing audiences – and money. Ticket holders will wait outside, desperately trying to hear what they can through the stage doors over the din of midtown traffic. During the intermission, the audience will then be seated for what is a fully immersive experiential second act, Is the maskless man next to you a tourist or a member of the cast playing an anti-masker who brought his 14-year-old son to Broadway because he's getting a divorce and wants to win his love? Okay, spoiler. I wasn't going to share this, but I just feel like this is going really well. We are in talks (laughs) with the young boy from Mayor of Easttown to play the teen. Oh, Virginia, you should hear his
1: voice. Breaking news here. That is all just wow.
4: Yes. And now what I'm hearing from you is that you would like to invest. And the great news is, is there is plenty of opportunity for you to do that. So we'll talk offline and I will share with you all the ways you can support this dream and vision.
1: Paige Flake, thank you so much for being here. Oh, no, no, no. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, take a minute, rate it, review it, five-star it on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people learn about the show. For more information and to keep tabs on us, follow me on Twitter at page88 and at this critical pod, we welcome criticism. And if you have a question or a cultural creed that you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan and Stitcher. Kate James was our comic relief this week. Harry Huggins is the valiant producer. He got help from McKenna Smith and the consulting producer, Tamika Weatherspoon. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Marderana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next time.
3: Stitcher Justin and so good.